Welcome back to 60 Weeks, 60 Books, Week 35. Today, on a more cheerful note compared to the last two episodes, I remember reading a magnificent history book by the man I think is arguably the best British historian in the post-war period against extremely strong competition. The first book I read by Simon Sharma was Citizens, which he wrote in time for the bicentenary of the French Revolution in 1989. I'd bought it when it came out and ended up lugging it unread to China, where at last I did finish it. I loved the French Revolution, a period I had first come across as a child, thanks first to R.J. Unstead's looking at history books, my father's fascination with Napoleon, A Tale of Two Cities, and Thunder at Valmy by Geoffrey Treese, a novelisation of the Battle of Valmy, where France's revolutionary army first tasted success. At school, at the age of 12, I wrote a play about the terror and took the leading role of Robespierre myself. So Sharma's thesis that fundamentally the revolution was all about violence and guillotines suited me thoroughly, compounded by my enjoyment of Danton, the 1983 film featuring a then still compelling Gérard Depardieu. Citizens came under fire for Sharma's thesis that essentially the French Revolution was an eruption and celebration of violence, that ultimately the revolution was a destructive event that suppressed France's opportunities, and it has been criticised for subjectivity and selective interpretation. It is still, however, selling a popular success, largely, I think, because Sharma's narrative style is so individual and energetic. I thoroughly enjoyed the book, which I read alongside Hilary Mantel's excellent novel, A Place of Greater Safety, which she wrote in the 1970s, but which remained unpublished until 1992. I think it holds the seeds of her then magnificent trilogy about Cromwell. My next great Sharma epic was his 1995 exploration of the relationship between humans and nature, called Landscape and Memory. I have never since been able to walk in a wood or a forest without having in the back of my mind Sharma's exploration of in particular the primordial Polish and Lithuanian forests populated by huge deer and bison and the way it seemed that everything that Sharma had ever encountered was somehow synthesised and connected. His breadth of knowledge, his ability to weave together disparate information and ideas to produce fresh insights into human endeavour, experience and our struggles with nature and in nature are breathtaking and compelling. Like Autolycus, the mercurial peddler in A Winter's Tale, Sharma snaps up unconsidered trifles, but then takes them and builds them into structures and contexts that truly enrich the reader. In the Embarrassment of Riches opening pages, he comments on his own thieving magpie approach to borrowing ideas, techniques, and understanding from other, other disciplines. <coughs> and it does enrich his work. I remember finishing the book with a huge sense of amazement for the wonders of our complicated and fascinating world. Sharma's interpretations of magical beasts, myth and enchantment linger with me now when we travel along the coast in Brazil or inland, where the forests that once dominated the land have been reduced to a tiny proportion of the coast, 
Yet when you walk along even the shortest trail into the Mata Atlantica, it suddenly feels impenetrable and vast and unknown, and the great journeys into the interior forcing slaves up through the Mata, along riverbeds and over the mountains towards the mines of Ouro Preto and Diamanchina seem extraordinary in their ambition as well as their evil. Sharma, though, is all about the art, and I think his true gift as a historian has been to explore the ways in which art reveals to us so much about how our ancestors experienced daily life, how it tells us so much about the ways in which their minds worked and their existence was shaped by influences quite different to our own. In his interpretation of art, Sharma builds a bridge that connects us not simply with events and actions, but with how our predecessors thought and felt and reacted. The embarrassment of riches is for me the finest evocation of a particular time and place that I think I've ever encountered. Fittingly, it was a piece of art that set me on the path to reading the book, a portrait not by a Flemish or Dutch artist, but by a woman from Italy painting nearly a century before the Netherlands became for a time the heart of culture and economic activity in Europe. One summer, we stopped at Blois, a place I'd longed to see ever since reading Dorothy Dunnett's Queen's Play, which features all sorts of shenanigans in the rooftops of Blois. We went round the palace, and in one of the rooms was an image of a young girl of around 10, whose face was covered in what looked like soft and luxuriant fur. That girl was Tonina Gonzalves, or Antonia Gonzalez, one of several children of Pedro Gonzalves, a hirsute man who came from the Canary Islands, was treated pretty much as a pet and a favourite at the Spanish court, married a Dutch woman, was a servant then, at the courts of the kings of France and Spain, travelled widely and eventually ended up in Prague with his family. The artist Lavinia Fontana was a source of much fascination for me and I began reading about women artists of the 16th and 17th centuries, coming across eventually Judith Leister and Rachel Reich, artists of the Dutch Golden Age. Leister painted pictures that rival those of the better-known Franz Hals, he of the Laughing Cavalier, whilst Reich was one of the finest painters of those magnetic still-life images of fruit and flowers depicting tulips, roses, carnations and convolvulus, and poppies with incredible detail and dexterity. There was room for women painters to work during the Golden Age because demand for art was so extensive in what Sharma calls that cramped space between the Scheldt and the Ems. At last, I picked up my copy of The Embarrassment of Riches. It is a book of contradictions and hypocrisy of how this small, sodden patch of low lands became the powerhouse of the 17th century and how its people lived complicated lives where delight and pleasure were continually circumscribed by pressures to conform and comply with social regulations and scriptural encomia. Sharma unpicks and analyses the extremes of Dutch society, at once devout and raucous, simultaneously celebrating materialism in its most abundant forms and repressing, at the same time, all ungodly urges. He guides us carefully through the images of wealthy burghers and their wives, 
the depictions of their meals and their homes, the exteriors and interiors of churches, houses, taverns and civic buildings, reflecting on the messages that they sought to give each other about their status, their probity, the uxorious inclinations, their musical instruments and their desire at once to parade their wealth and yet demonstrate their moral worth, their literal and their metaphorical cleanliness and godliness. The gift here is that Sharma introduces us to a world of humans at once like us and yet utterly distinct. Accustomed as we are to science fiction made flesh through film and television, the concept that we could travel through time and discover people much like ourselves, Sharma reminds us that the way that people of Amsterdam and Rotterdam and the Hague lived was particular and specific and not necessarily that relatable. It was a time where it seems that prosperity was accessible, not just to an elite, but to a broad slice of that society. A time where the middle classes were expanding and many people could afford meat and fruit and fine wines, beautiful materials, silks and velvets, without being kings or princes or nobility. The age was golden because merchants and traders, craftsmen and artisans worked and became prosperous, even if some of them were later bankrupted. Visiting Rembrandt's house in Amsterdam or the older parts of Delft and The Hague, we can begin to grasp what this prosperity meant. An eruption of house building in the early 1600s, those neat, narrow brick houses rising above canals and along cobbled streets, the whitewashed walls and ceilings, the brass chandeliers, the dark wainscoting and wooden floors, the stoves and, where possible, high windows inviting in the light that then falls in image after image on the women whose work it is to keep these homes clean, tidy, apparently simple and frugal, until you examine the rich carpet on the table or the damask robe and rich lace in which the baby dancing or dandled on someone's knee is dressed. Sharma dives beneath the surface image, unpicks and explores not just what people ate and drank and wore and bought, but their moods and their preoccupations, their worldly and their spiritual lives, and how these came together to create a sense of identity and nationhood, how these also came to be part of a collective consciousness and conscience. The book is cultural, anthropological, as well as economic and political. One of the phrases that Sharma uses early in the book is about the contradictions of the world that we see through the lens of Leicester, Hulse, Vermeer and, of course, Rembrandt. He observes the fondness of the Dutch burghers for intimations of their mortality, the memento mori, the wilting, drooping flowers and overripe fruit, the single fly marring the immaculate surface of an apple, and comments on the continuous pricking of conscience on complacency produced the self-consciousness that we think of as embarrassed. Explicitly, Sharma explores the excess, the superfluity and abundance of goods, of wealth and of opportunity that characterised the Golden Age, and how the Dutch at once celebrated and deplored acquisition and materialism. It brings out in them a sense of what both Sharma and earlier de Tocqueville think of as melancholy and disgust at their life of comfort 
and indulgence. It goes to the heart of the contradictions innate in a capitalist model of society. We seek wealth, security, the dream, and yet, when we attain it, we are struck by the emptiness of our achievement. We seek to fill that void with stuff. Coincidentally, as I was rereading Sharma over recent weeks, I was also watching the final series of the long-form TV show Succession about the feuding children of media mogul Logan Roy. The show takes place mostly in New York, which of course started life as New Amsterdam, a settlement built by the Dutch as the trade in beaver pelts exploded in the early 17th century and formed part of the basis of the fortune that created the Golden Age. Succession is an object lesson of how truly miserable the ultra-rich can be. It is clear that the Roy children have everything that money can buy. Gadgets and gizmos, fancy watches, swanky clothes and immaculate apartments. Everything in tasteful shades of grey or beige. They are driven everywhere. They never take a scheduled flight. It's private jets all the way. And yet they are miserable and would sit well in one of the depictions of betrothals between mismatched couples brought together to increase assets or influence that hang in the Rijksmuseum, in the Met, the National Galleries of London and Washington DC and the Musée de Beaux-Arts in Brussels. The pun, the perception, the brio of Sharma's style and approach to history and art are still, years later, exuberant and wonderfully rich. It was interesting that his books are not available as e-books. They're packed with prints and images. At least I could not find them on any platform. They are full of all of these re reproductions that would get lost on a handheld device. They are printed on smooth, shining paper. Both The Embarrassment of Riches and Landscape and Memory are not simple history books, but treasure houses of all that is most interesting and exciting about the way we think, believe and endure. Join me next week for a look at the last of the non-fiction books that resonated with me in those years that we lived in Brighton. Stephen Pinker's The Blank Slate, a book which introduced me to evolutionary psychology and remains high on my list of accessible, interesting social science. Bye-bye.